Welcome, everyone, to episode 207 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're reviewing David O. Russell's return to the big screen after seven years with the ensemble comedy thriller Amsterdam. Before we get to that, though, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, happy October. Can you believe award season is kind of <laughs> upon us imminently? I don't know. Christ. Um, yeah, no, I, I can't believe it. I can't believe we're going to have to start talking about this again. I can't believe we may have to start talking about this film. I mean, surely not at this point, but um, I wouldn't. I, so. I wouldn't put it past the Academy to nominate. Uh, Maybe production design or something. Yeah. yeah. But if if not this movie, I'm sure there's going to be other things where we just sit around and scratch our head of why are Light we even talking about this? Yeah. Um, why are we even talking about this? But, you know, there's occasionally a good thing or two happens in award season. But yeah, Scott, I'm, I guess I'm ready for the movies to get good uh, because, you know, yeah. this weekend, for example, none of them came out here. But like in New York and L.A., I know that like Tar opened. I know that Bones and All opened. I'm pretty sure Decision to Leave might have as well. Um, later, no, later, later this month. It's coming soon now. And uh, Bones you know, and All opened Army. this weekend? I didn't even realize that. I think so, yeah. Armageddon Time is coming soon. You know, the James Gray film. Yeah. Um, quite quite a few movies that uh, I'm looking forward to and that are getting more positive buzz mm -hmm. than some of these other movies that we were looking forward to, we were thinking of as big Oscar contenders, but obviously have kind of flopped now. So I, I'm ready for the ones that don't flop, I guess is what I'm saying. And we're getting closer and closer. You're ready for the non-flop. You, you love films that don't flop as well. Yeah. Well, you've seen them all. You've seen, you know, the, all these films them. I'm talking about right now. But um, yeah, that is true. so I I, I, uh, I know that some of them are not going to be flops just based on your your takes. But um, but mm -hmm. yeah, it's uh, it's always exciting for this time of year for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, a lot of sports going on. Movies are sure. starting to get good. Like I said, weather is in a nice spot. Um, oh, it's, so, yeah, it's perfect here right now. Yeah, 60, 60, it. 65 degrees right now. Yes, please. Yeah, that's what we have had here. I uh, made my first soup of the season yesterday, which was great. Oh. Um, what's 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 your what's your go to soup? We're getting going. I made some chicken tortilla yesterday. It was uh, it was good. It was solid. Uh, got, you know, about four four dinners out of it. So um, there you go. That uh, that is always a good thing. It is almost yeah, chili season. Like chili season I is, thought, is happening. Soon. I thought about a chili, yeah, but um, we'll we'll work our way up to that. We'll work our way up. Yeah, you got to pace yourself. You know exactly. You know, like with uh, like with like with award season, uh, you have to pace yourself. <laughs> I guess I don't know. Yeah, I'm loving the weather right now. I will openly, happily admit that. Um, I was talking to a friend who was in California right now the other day, and they were talking about like, oh, like. I really am uh, not looking forward to coming back to New York in in a month because they were on like they were doing they're in med school doing like some sort of like brief rotation in California. I'm like, this is the time, man. Like, I don't know what you're complaining about. Like the weather's great right now. It's like the what like the one month out of the year where the weather in California and the weather in New York is like practically the same. Coinciding, yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't really know what they're looking for out of their life, but apparently it's not sixty to sixty five degrees and nice out. Um, there are some people like that. But... Yeah, so be it. They'd rather it be 70 degrees or whatever it is in San Francisco. Um, who knows? Yes. 
Yeah. Those five degrees make a lot of difference. I understand. But nice I mean, look, I, as someone who went to San Diego day. earlier this year for vacation, like it's nice out there. <laughs> like, you know, I <laughs> yeah. could, I could vibe with that weather. I, I am sure I haven't been to the state of California myself, but, um, I've heard I've heard the rumors, Scott. Heard the rumors. It's nice. Yeah, I can confirm the rumors are true. Uh, we can also confirm some, can confirm some rumors about this film that we're talking about on the podcast today. We'll get to that in a second. But you know, as I already mentioned, the topic for today is David O. Russell's uh, film Amsterdam, starring Christian Bale, John David Washington, and Margot Robbie in the lead roles. Amsterdam is a period piece set in 1933 in New York that follows two longtime friends and World War One veterans, a doctor by by Christian Bale and a lawyer, played by John David Washington, who find themselves ensconced in a most-of-this-actually-happened political conspiracy um, after their World War I regiment's commander and now senator mysteriously dies on his way home from a political trip to Italy. When the former commander's daughter, played by Taylor Swift, hires Washington's Herald and Bales Burt to investigate the circumstances of her father's death, she is pushed in front of oncoming traffic later that day to her own death while Harold and Bert are framed for her murder. To clear their own names and get to the bottom of who killed their former commander and his daughter, Harold and Bert go on a chaotic, often wild, goose chase that reunites them with the nurse who cared for Harold and Bert's wounds in the war, Valerie, played by Margot Robbie, who also just happened to be Harold's ex-flame and the vet duo's accomplice in their post-war antics in Amsterdam. With the gang back together and suspects identified, Harold... Bert and Valerie race to uncover this growing conspiracy before it's too late and the course of American history has changed forever. Scott did David O. Russell's return to the big screen with an A-list ensemble cast to die for and at least somewhat culturally relevant themes wow you or did it leave you wishing that you had been the one poisoned with mercury rather than Senator Meekins? You know, if you're listening to that plot description and you're thinking, hey, this sounds pretty good, uh, you know, yeah. you, would, you wouldn't be, you know, we, we wouldn't fault you for doing so because, uh, you know, I mean, this yeah. is obviously one we, we were looking forward to, Scott. Um, it was on my list. Yeah, yeah, we talked about it. And I believe our, our feeling at the time was, you know, the only only thing that is giving us any pause about this is David O. Russell as a director, right? He's made at least one film that both of us really like, Scott. But sure. in uh, in recent years, it seems has has fallen off. You know, he followed up that movie, which was Silver Linings Playbook, with American Hustle and Joy, which uh, were yeah. widely considered to be pretty pretty big misfires. Um, sure. And just despite them getting Oscar attention, um, and you know, he's actually taken seven years off now before making this film. Um, six or seven years off. Um, and like I said, our thought kind of was, you know, he's the only thing that gives us pause because it seems like he's gone down a, a road in his career that is not something that, you know, we are particularly interested in. And unfortunately, Scott, uh, the worst case scenario happened, which uh, was that David O. Russell, his, his stamp, if you want to call it that, because I don't even know how you can say there's anything distinctive really about his filmmaking, um is all over this and it is all over this in the worst possible way uh because this movie is incoherent it has a plot that makes no sense it is extremely boring it has some of the most lackluster attempts at screwball madcap comedy that i've ever seen to be quite honest 
Um, most of the performers who have been mentioned are completely neutered in their performances. Um, the movie, despite being shot by one of the greatest li living cinematographers, looks like it was has Instagram filters on every single scene. Um, it's an absolute disaster. And thematically, uh, I should add to thematically, you get to the end of the movie and like the themes reveal themselves. And it's like, number one, that's what this movie was about? Question mark. And number two, that's what this movie was about? Like exclamation point. Like that's it. That's all you all you feel after watching this. Kind of kind of you know, kind of similarly to Don't Worry Darling, um, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's like once once you you know certain things finally reveal themselves, it's like, really? That is what you went to all this trouble to tell us. Um, and that is kind of how I felt at the end of Amsterdam. Uh this movie is it's terrible. It is honestly terrible. Like I you know, uh, will I, I don't use that word often because I, I tend to, you know, get something out of most movies just by virtue of them being movies. But we've now had two episodes in a row, Scott, of movies that I think are legitimately terrible. Um, and both, again, have things in common. They're both from, you know, filmmakers who people keep an eye on. Um, they're both like have huge casts. They're both like, at least on the surface, splashy Oscar contenders, and they both are complete and utter dumpster fires. Um, I hated watching this, Scott. I was saying beforehand that if we had not been doing it for the podcast, I honestly think I would have walked out halfway through the movie um, because I was just sitting there like with my hand on my temple, like, how is this going to go on for another hour, hour and 15 minutes? Um, I think the worst thing is that this movie, like I'm saying, has it has no identity whatsoever. Um, David O. Russell, like, you know, when he came up with movies like uh, Spanking the Monkey and I Heart Huckabees, like he was an auteur. Right. And he still has that sort of thing where he can get his name in the trailer. Right. Oh, it's from David O. Russell, the director of The Fighter, from the director of Silver Linings Playbook. Right. Um Whatever was once distinctive or unique or fresh about his filmmaking has clearly gone out the window in the last decade because it seems like he is more interested in selling a product to the Academy than he is on making a movie that has any sort of actual passion or inspiration in it. Um, like, I, I genuinely wonder whether he, he I, this is a movie you, you watch and it's like, does this guy enjoy making movies? Um, because there, it doesn't feel like there's any sort of heart or again, or inspiration or passion being put into the construction or creation of this movie. It feels like he is putting a bunch of A-list actors and, you know, extravagant sets in front of us and saying, are you not entertained? And the answer is no, we're not entertained. Um, and thankfully this time, unlike with kind of with joy and American hustle, the critics, I think are, are backing backing that perspective up on it because those movies were still got still pretty decent reviews. Um, this I mean, American sick. hustle was one of the best reviewed films of 2013. Yeah. It has, it has like a 90 on Metacritic. And I will say, you know, I'm talking about him having no identity as a filmmaker. The only thing I would point to, I guess, is that he does go for this sort of screwball thing in a lot of his movies and even silver linings playbook. Right. I think it has a lot of these sort of zany screwball madcap 
scenes. Um, yeah, for elements. sure. hundred percent. You know, and, you and have they work. like, they work in that movie. You, right. You have like yeah. the Chris Tucker character who just keeps randomly showing up. You have like this final scene at the house where they're all shouting and there's all the, all the competing plots have come together and everything. And it's yeah. almost like the, the end of this movie, you have like a similar scene and it just hits. So it's so much flatter than it is in silver linings playbook. Like, Again, it just feels like he just th there's no heart left in, in him as a filmmaker. And he I mean, this it's lazy. I didn't laugh once. I didn't smile once. The humor is it's embarrassing. Like this whole thing is embarrassing, Scott, considering the people involved, especially the cast. Um, like, I, I, I cannot believe that this movie no, no one said no at any step of the process. Like it feels like it was put together by an artificial intelligence program and not a particularly clever or, you know, good one. Um, I don't know what else to say. I mean, the crazy thing we haven't even really talked about the rest of this cast. I mean, yeah, the, we talked about some big names at the out, like with the leads and referencing Taylor Swift being in the movie as well, but like. Chris Rock, Andy Taylor-Joy, Zoe Saldana, Mike Myers, Michael Shannon, Timothy Oliphant, Andrea and, Riseborough, and Rami every Malik, single time, Robert De Niro. Like. To, to my point, every single time one of them makes their first appearance in the movie, the camera like has some dramatic reveal shot. Maybe it like focuses on their shoes first and then pans up. Maybe it's like the person appears but from a door and it's like – and there's like a pause as if we're just supposed to like break into applause, right, that Mike Myers has now appeared in this film. Um, it, it's obvious David O. Russell just like gets off on, hey, look at who I can put in this movie and like, you know – I mean, that's kind thinks of his identity just, as a filmmaker. Thanks, we're just now. a bunch of monkeys banging symbols together, and we'll just like that's all we need is to see somebody that we like. And I mean, most audiences are like that with Marvel, but I mean, if we're, yeah. if we're being honest about it, but I do think that like that's kind of his identity as an auteur. I mean, he's kind of up there with Adam McKay in that sense, although maybe maybe not to quite the same extent because I do think Adam McKay is trying to make like important films in quotation marks. I don't think David O. Russell. Even though this has like relevant real, things, I don't know. Rarefied air there, him yeah. and Adam McKay. <laughs> sure, but I'm just saying, like, I I feel like both yeah. both of these people, you know, their identity is just like, look how many stars I can put into my movie. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Because I can tell you, he he didn't seem to spend much time on the script. Um, it, it has to be one of those like the most incomprehensible, like, not like it, for the kind of movie that's not trying to be incomprehensible. It has to be one of the most incomprehensible movies I've ever seen. Like, just genuinely had, like, legitimately had just had no idea what was, like, what was happening scene to scene. Some of the, and, like, and, half the film. I had no idea what was going on. And it's based on a real historical event, right? There, mostly. You, mostly. I mean, yeah, and I will say, like, the second that that card. I want to blow my brains out like, whenever that gets put I, on I was like, this movie is going to suck. Like, there, there's no <laughs> way you can come back from that. Um, it's a really bad card to put on your first just to put it on literally just read the wikipedia page and you will know everything you need to know you will understand everything that happens so much better than you will if you watch this movie yeah it's not good also scott i'm gonna i'm gonna be open and honest about this john david washington sucked in this movie he was he terrible was, he was really bad and I will say, I have seen people having a referendum on him as a result of this movie. I don't think that's fair. I still think no, he's no. a good actor. I think he's very charismatic. Well, people like to bag on like, him for Tenet. He was. I feel like people were mixed 
on him and Tenet, which I think is part of that. People were just mixed on Tenet, I think, was the thing. But That's true, too. Uh, but I think they singled out his performance as not as being weak in the film, which I disagree yeah, this with completely. T- but whatever. Again, on the whole artificial intelligence thing, this place take this movie takes place in like a sicko universe where uh, John David Washington has no charisma. Rami Malek actually kind of seems like a human being. And Taylor Swift gets killed. Taylor Swift gets killed, and yet there's absolutely no intrigue or interest in like figuring out what happened to her or who did it or. I mean, that's like the craziest thing is, is like people just like do not seem to care (laughs) that this woman has been pushed in front of a car. Like they kind of do, but like not really. Like no one really is caring that this woman just got pushed in front of a car. So, so why? Like this, I just don't understand. Like. What happens is they are standing here on the sidewalk and having a conversation. Some, they're having a conversation with her. Yeah. Some guy runs up and pushes her in front of a car. Timothy Oliphant's character. Gets, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. Timothy yeah. Oliphant, who is like barely recognizable. He looks He's super a creepy and has no eyebrows. Yeah. Uh, he gets pushed in front. So Taylor Swift gets pushed in front of the car and dies. And then all of a sudden, the entire he, he he starts pointing the finger at them and is like, "They did it. I saw it." They and the entire crowd just like ra- who was presumably also standing there. Well, I assumed that it was like planted people them. or whatever, but you might, maybe I don't know. But that seems like, don't you think that seems like so convoluted yes. to think that yes. like yes they would put every that this could work out specifically yeah. like to where they were all standing there and, uh-huh. and she was standing there and the car would drive by at this time like. Yeah. No, like that is absurd to think. And I was just movie magic, Scott. You just gotta, you just gotta embrace the movie magic. Who were those people? That is just what I was thinking the entire. I mean, it's also like these these cops were shooting at them. Yeah. And then they just like two guys just roll up to this person's address and just like, oh, whatever, man, it's cool. They just run behind a corner. Oh, how about the scene where? They are leaving Anya Taylor Joy and Rami Malik's house, and the doctor is coming in to examine Margot Robbie. And they're like, "He's like, oh hey, I'm a doctor too. What's wrong with her?" And the yeah. doctor just gives them like her entire prognosis. Well, she has a nervous disorder, and I was like, "Did they not have HIPAA back then? <laughs> like, probably not so. actually." But yeah. like, he just he just gives it all up right there simply because Christian Bale, who is a complete kook with one eye walks up and goes yeah i'm a doctor if he's he making his that, own pain like, medication yeah, buddy, in his sure like back are, alley yeah. doctor's office just sure mixing his are. own chemistry in the back <laughs> yeah yeah he uh he demeans himself quite a bit in this movie i would say i mean his con- his his collaborations with david o russell are only just beginning scott oh I, and man. I, I mean like he has this weird like he talks in a really quirky voice. He has like a hunch. It seems like he he has more of a hunch as the movie goes on. Like when he walks, like he just the hunch the it just becomes more pronounced as the movie goes on. Yeah, I mean, somehow Robert De Niro was standing straighter up than than Christian Bale in this film, and I I think Robert De Niro is what is he ninety? How old is he now? Uh, he's not quite that old, but so Robert De Niro has the the movie has a climax at this big speech that happened, and I don't care about spoiling it because no one should see this movie. No one should see this movie. Also, it's it's it. it's actual history. This, this and it's impossible to yeah. spoil because I don't know what happened. But um, <laughs> Robert De Niro is giving is giving us like a big impassioned speech right in this theater, and someone starts shooting at him. And he just stands there. Arrest that man. He just stands there. You're a and coward. Like, get him. Get him. And Christian Bale stands in front of him and gets shot. Yeah. And he's like, you good? 
Like he's and he's still just standing there in wide open space, like in in the you know. Yeah, I mean, men were men were made different back then. Men were made different back then. I I just I just don't understand. Like, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's rough. Uh huh. Yeah, the film's very rough. I guess to get back to my general thoughts, we really got we got sucked down a bit of a tangent there for a moment. But yeah, Scott, I just I really did not enjoy the experience. I really I'm really quite negative on being on my phone and other people around me being on their phones during a movie. But Scott, I was texting everyone I knew during that movie. I was texting <laughs> you. I was texting my mother. I was, I was I was texting Karen. I was texting Jay. Uh, I just was not. I wasn't having it with the movie. I, I made it like twenty five minutes. Be- I made it like twenty five minutes before I got on my phone. But Scott, like, I just like I. Oh my god! Like it was just. You you think that? I mean, you said that you felt the end of the movie was worse than the beginning. That might be true. Maybe I was just paying less attention at the end of the movie, and that was part of my savior, like my saving grace there. But those first thirty minutes, like, incoherent scene to scene, like no idea how like like one scene led to the next. It just seemed to be like weird, abrupt cuts on things, explaining, like half explaining certain things to you, like to the audience. Like John David Washington was like a zombie in this film. Like I had no idea what he he was was doing. He was literally sleepwalking. Yeah. Yeah. Like I have, I just, his first scene or whatever, when he's talking to Bert, like he's called him or whatever. And they're about to, he's about to introduce them to Taylor Swift's character. And he's just like, dead pan talking about their history together like it like it means absolutely nothing like he was reading a prompter card in this scene like it yeah. was nuts and like so much of the movie is premised on like the friendship pact and yeah. like, the romance romance between him and marco right it's like i'm sorry but like who would want to be friends with this guy he has no personality that's what i said i was like how how have you made a Washington in Hollywood have no personality. Like that is nuts. He ends up he ends up in Margot Robbie's ward, and like presumably she's seen so many other soldiers, right? And she's yeah. she's Margot Robbie, so like, yeah. you know, people are obviously going to be making advances to her. Why is he the guy who like all of a sudden is able to get through to her? I don't know, man. Could, I I couldn't tell you honestly. And there again, there are things that are like. Again, the the awful attempts at screwball stuff. It it it's awful because number one, it's not funny, and number two, it's it's so confusing. Like they go and see Mike Myers later in the movie, right? And there's like he, they're at a restaurant, and some guy just like runs up and throws water on him or something. Oh and yeah, we have no idea why. No idea why that. Happened. We have no idea why. It's just like one of those things. Again, like if you've seen enough screwball comedies, there's always like this crazy random stuff going on, but because it's executed so poorly you're not just like laughing at the absurdity of it you're like why did that just happen i'm so confused like Mm -hmm. why why indeed scott why indeed and and all of this happens so that they can tell us i hope you're sitting down that love is better than hate and that is that is the message of the movie love is better than hate and like I said, not only was I like shocked that it, the theme was, was that simple, but like I don't even think I was like that's what the movie was about. Like I feel like that that is it, at no point in the movie is like that theme established. It's just like 
said at the end as part of these like various monologues that end up like wrapping up the movie like I did not get the sense at any point in the movie that like this is some story of like love versus hate probably because I didn't know what the hell was happening in the movie I mean everything with Annie Taylor Joy and Rami Malek like I'm just like what (laughs) I mean I will say that if you have to point to anyone who gave good performances I honestly think the two of them are fine in the movie like I do like I think that they fit well in whatever sicko universe again that this movie was taking place like they actually committed to the bit they actually seemed like they made an effort in this movie well i, I think christian bale and margot robbie were were, were fine in the film as well i, I think just didn't Mar- really get their characters i think margot robbie was fine i think christian bale again like i guess i guess he made an effort right but like to yeah. what end because well that's that's the thing it's like yeah he's sort of um given the short end of the stick by this character but i mean forced yeah i i guess i i just found it to be like i don't know i didn't find much fault in the in his performance but you know to each their own scott we already started talking about the performances i feel like we even shared our thoughts on the on the lead performances there you called out annie taylor joy and rami malik i mean any, anything else you want to talk about this cast? I mean, we haven't really talked about Chris Rock or Zoe Saldana. Oh, my God. Chris Rock. Oh, my God. It Scott, seems like they asked him to come onto the set for two days and do some stand-up on camera. He To do rejected bits from his yeah. last comedy special. Yeah. He literally comes in. I don't yeah. know who he was, what the significance of this character was. He's also and he in comes the, in and in is like, regiment? white women, right? Am I right? Like, that's literally his only yeah. role. He comes in. No context. It doesn't. It isn't even super clear why he's oh. there at all. I, I don't he, really know why he was there. He's just he walks there in, at like, the end. You got a white man in a box? he just shows up at the end when everything is going down too i'm like why are you here and and all he's like is well, he's this is what happens when you get involved with white women you know like he was in their regiment in the military that's why oh he was my there gosh at the end at least i don't know why he was there any other time but <laughs> you, you know actually thinking about it now it, it does feel like kind of the chris tucker from silver Lattice playbook type thing where he just keeps randomly showing up and is like funny He's actually, he's actually Chris just Tucker a hallucination. He's not funny real. in Silver Lighting's playbook. Like, yeah, that's true. They, it literally, he's literally doing rejected stand-up bits. Like Chris it Rock has, like is funny and like has fine stand-up. But this is like, if you ask someone to describe like the most basic Chris Rock like bit, like the most dumbed down Chris Rock bit that you could imagine, it's this. Like it's it's yeah. whatever he is doing here. I think it's safe Zoe to say Saldana. that. Yeah. I, I don't know. know why honest to God, why is she in the movie at all? Because I guess she's supposed to be a love interest for for Christian Bale, but then also he still kind of loves his wife, Andrea Riseborough. So like leaves her at the end, but do you need a do you need Zoe Saldana in this movie? Do you need this character? No. Yeah. You don't need this movie. This movie doesn't need to exist. That's probably true. I think it's safe to say um, Jennifer Lawrence, Michael B. Jordan, Jamie Foxx, all dodge bullets on this one. Well, yeah, were they? Would that have been the the lead trio there, or what? Uh, I well, no. So it was Michael B. Jordan, then Jamie Foxx, and then John David Washington for that role. For John David Washington, right. and then Jennifer Lawrence was considered for Margot Robbie's role. 
I mean, the, nothing could have saved nothing could have saved this movie because they have so many phenomenal actors in here. Well, that's like, what I'm saying. That's why they yeah. dodged. It's not they they couldn't have uh -huh. have uh, tide shifted this story. Yeah, uh, they were just going to be taking strays with this film. <laughs> um, unfortunately. Uh, also, I hate to say that Beth Grant showed up for like two seconds as Robert De Niro's wife, which is a shame because she's also like a phenomenal character actress and plays an amazing villain but that was a complete misuse of her um, yeah what has she done recently i don't know i just think about her from like donnie darko and speed and a bunch of other stuff where she's mm -hmm. she plays a crazy woman but um she's done mostly tv shows it looks like recently just yeah again i think rami malik and annie taylor joy were fine uh they played off of each other okay. If there's anything redeeming in this movie, it was them. Um, and you know how low you must you must feel to be saying that. So the the only part where I kind of cracked a smile was when so Andy Taylor Joy's character is like obsessed with Robert De Niro and that was funny. Um, like thinks that there has this newsreel of him that like she loves playing or whatever and. She keeps going on about it, and you know, there's back and forth, and yada yada yada, and blah blah blah, because that's just how all the dialogue in the movie goes. And then, like, she and Margot Robbie are just going back and forth because they're just like bickering the whole movie. And then there's like a pause, and Rami Malik, Rami Ma no, Rami Malik is like, guess we're watching the newsreel. Then I don't know, just the way he delivered the line or something was like actually made me crack a smile. But like, it was yeah. the only moment that was like that in the whole movie. Taylor Swift, I want to say. I've seen people that are like crapping on her performance and like, obviously I'm a little bit biased because I am, you know, a massive obviously. fan of her. I don't know how you can pass any sort of value judgment on her in this movie. She's not in the movie. Like it's a cameo. She's in it for four minutes. Like I saw, I see people like Taylor Swift gives the worst performance in the movie. I, I think if you say that you're no. bringing in your preconceived notions of Taylor Swift into the movie because the, the weirdest thing, Go ahead. Sorry. I, I mean, I didn't think that anything about her performance was bad. I didn't think anything about her performance was good. It was it did what it was supposed to do. She was in the movie for four minutes and she had one part where she got to sing, which is nice. But it did feel like they got her in the movie just so they could, like, do some weird crack three second singing thing, which was very strange. Yeah. The, the weirdest thing about her scene is how many times they repeat what time and where they're going to meet after they do the autopsy. Yeah. Like, yeah. I swear to God, <laughs> they say it 10 times in this scene. I'm just like, it's, what is happening? Am I having again, a stroke? It's, like, It's the screwball thing where it's like so busy, like something always has to be happening or somebody always has to be talking. Something has to be going on. It is just nonstop busyness. And it's a mess when you can't, when you have no control over the movie, which he does, which he does not. Like, he has no control. It feels like he just put everyone in front of the camera and said, all right, you guys figure it out. Pain, Scott. Pain. Um, uh, what are you going to do? How do, you, how do you feel about the fact that Christian Bale has arguably been in the two worst movies that we've reviewed on this podcast? Has starred in both of them. Mm -hmm. Between this and Vice. Oh, see now, okay. I, I guess I have to think back about from my perspective films, I films that I, I, I would not say that Vice, Vice Amsterdam. 
Well, Amsterdam and Vice are definitely not even in like the bottom five movies I've watched in the last five years, I'd say. But and that's crazy to me. But well, I mean, I watched some some pretty horrible Netflix garbage in there. That's definitely worse than this stuff. Um, she didn't have to go to the theater to watch. Also, li- also Lightyear. I like I hated Lightyear more than I hated this, personally. It's not Lena, a compliment to to Amsterdam. After after, uh, after seeing my review of this movie, Lena Donovan is calling her agent and is like, "We're back, baby, we're back." Because uh, yeah, mm-hmm. Sharp Stick is no longer the most vile thing that I've seen this year. Mm, yes, um, and, I, I, and, I thought that you... this was comparable to Moonfall this year. Uh, the difference is I had a lot more fun watching Moonfall. Yeah, I mean. Again, it starts out and I'm like, okay, I know what this is going to be. It's going to be like fine. It's going to be like very mediocre, right? It's not like going to be something that is just like actively bad. It's just going to be be like Joy, which was just like an aggressively mediocre film. Nothing. And then as it kept going on, I just got more and more offended. Because like for me to, to hate a movie like this, it usually has to like personally offend me in some way. And I got so like, I just got more and more offended by like just the nonsense the lack of effort the lack of anything in this movie and thinking about the amount of people or the amount of money that was spent on this the the people who were involved you know it's just like it's infuriating that all of them wasted their time on this like this movie is a complete waste of time and money and i mean i i thought i would probably say f9 is worse than this last year No. The only thing that I would say is worse than this that we've reviewed for the podcast is Vice. We didn't review Cherry on the podcast. That's unfortunate. You really screwed me on that one. We were supposed to review that movie. Uh, yeah. It, I don't know. It, I guess Black Christmas 2019 was pretty horrible, too. But it's it's yeah, those are the three it. for me. But Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's up there. It's on the list. Like, I'm just looking at the Netflix movies that I saw in like 2019, 2020, which were probably worse than this. Um, the last thing he wanted. Talk about incoherent movies with movie stars in it. I couldn't even explain to you the plot of, the plot of that movie after I saw it. Yeah. And Anne Hathaway and Ben A- and Ben Affleck are the stars of that movie. Like, what happened? <laughs> um, the rhythm section. What a picture. <sighs> But the rhythm section is what I'm saying. The rhythm section is nothing. That is just, that's a fake movie. Amsterdam is like, it's a movie. Like, people will talk about this movie. It it will be remembered, even though it, like, is bombing. Will it? No one's seen it. Is that true? It, yes, it will be remembered. Not necessarily even because people saw it, but just because of what it is. It was David O. Russell. It had all of these people in it. Like, Mm. Secret Obsession is still the worst movie I've seen in the last five years. I'm going to have to keep thinking about this. Yeah. And that is the most disturbing thing about it. <laughs> the Last Summer? Remember that movie, Scott? <laughs> oh, my God. But you don't expect that to be good. Like, there's no reason that movie should be good. That's true. That is true. I will just say that David O. Russell, from here on out, is getting the Adam McKay treatment for me, which means I am not watching his movies anymore. Like Even if this... someone tells you his next film is really good, would you watch it then? If I came here on the podcast and told you with a straight face that the movie was good, 
Would you watch it? No. Because I don't even think if I came on the podcast and told you an Adam McKay movie was good, you would watch it. No. Would you watch the David O. Russell movie, though? No. What would it take? Like to convince you, not not even saying like not money, just like what would it take for you to be convinced to watch? Uh, if Anya Taylor Joy called me and said, "Hey, let's go out tonight and see the new David O. Russell movie." If Paul and I give it five stars and gain it our number one movie of that year, would you watch it? <laughs> uh, no, I would jump off a bridge if that happened. I honestly would. Okay. Because I would not want to live in the universe anymore where you and Paul are giving five why, stars. Why would you not want to live in a universe where a movie was good? That's what I'm confused about. <laughs> See, the, the, this, I, the, is, this is actually well, this is look, meta, meta. The other meta fact part, we're okay. overlooking is that David O. Russell is a terrible person. <laughs> we haven't sure. really brought that up at all. And Tom Cruise, also bad. Like, we were just talking about, like, the kind of people people Okay, are. okay. But, but Tom Cruise, like, he's part of a weird religious cult thing. Okay, that's bad. David R. Russell probably like molested his teenage niece. Like that seems like it's on a whole different plane I, I, of awfulness. I, I I don't disagree that it seems very bad that he did that. I think that he probably is a very bad person. I think you should read a little bit about Scientology if you think that Tom Cruise hasn't been <laughs> hasn't been party to some other equally bad stuff of treatment of people. I love that we've ended up here in our review of this. We're just, <laughs> well, I was gonna... we're just digging the hole even deeper. Yeah, I know, right? Um Art and artist, man. You're going to have a great time watching Tar, thinking about the, separating the art from the artist. I'll say that much. Look, it's fine. I, I, don't, I don't have a problem doing that. I like plenty of Woody Allen movies, but like, sure. it, seems, it seems like it's probably also worth mentioning when we're talking about a movie that, like, again, is so lazy and such a waste of money and resources, like, that not only did this movie get made but it was allowed to be made by somebody who probably shouldn't be allowed to make any movies yeah that's fair yeah i don't know it's it's tough right if you're going to separate the art from the artist then like you know what's i mean i would agree that that uh, abusing, no I, I, I know what you're abusing saying someone like is bad but like yeah i don't know like I mean, obviously, what Harvey Weinstein—he shouldn't be making movies. I totally agree with that. But like, where, like, where is the line drawn? I guess. Yeah. Look, at the end of the day, I went to see this movie because <laughs> I can I can separate the art from the artist, right? Like, if if I couldn't, I neither one of if neither one of us did, we probably wouldn't have even gone to see the movie because we're patronizing it in some way. Um, yeah, he's getting paid off our money. I'm sure. I'm sure he has. At the end of the day. We don't even really have to worry about the art from artist conversation because the movie is because the art's not terrible. the art and the it's artist terrible. are both bad because they're both horrible. Yeah. 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 Scott, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about, I'm sure, but uh, I don't know if my blood pressure or you know, will to live um, allows it. So uh, anything else you'd like to bring up? Um, no, I think I've surely I've said all that I wanted to say about about this movie yeah um let's not even bother favorite scene or moment just forget it what are you giving this i've already said i like the one line that that oh sure yeah that was the only one yeah 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 yeah. i uh i'm gonna have to think about a scene that i liked in this movie i'll have to reflect on like all the singing scott i wanted to kill myself when they started singing like the second or third time i was like oh this is this is a bit they're gonna do the nonsense songs that they sing are actually the part of the movie that made the most sense, which is, you know, what's pretty. I can understand why they were saying the words they're saying because they pulled them out of a yeah. hat uh, beforehand. 
it was made clear to me why they were saying what they were saying. None of the other stuff mm -hmm. in the film seemed very clear. Um, yeah, I'm just looking through the cast list if I was pleased with anyone in this. No idea. Nope. Yeah, I mean, I would say John David Washington comes out of it the worst of anybody. Oh, a, as a far thousand as the cast. percent. I mean, he's just so he's atrocious. He's, he's really so bad. bad. I, yeah. I will say I will I mean, say Mike Myers as bad as uh, as nonsensical. Some of the jokes there. I thought that, that was kind of funny. Well, you know why you liked it, though, because he's playing the exact same character that he plays in Inglorious Bastards, like the exact sure. same shtick he's doing it here in this movie. So That's they fair. can't even like do something good, like it, anything that they do good is like not even original. So. Okay. And Michael Shannon, right. like, why was Michael Shannon in this? I mean, why was in why, why, why were, were any uh, of these people in this in this movie? Matthias Schoenarts and then. What was going on with, um, oh God, who's Nibola. playing Alexander Nabola? Yeah. What was going on with his character? I didn't know. Couldn't tell you. He didn't he like, so uh, he didn't strange. like, is that what it is? This movie is just so weird. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I really got uh, some perspective on my New York Film Festival time this week, watching a bunch of, you know, like three and a half plus star films pretty much with only a few exceptions. Um, and then this. And then this film. And speaking of that, Scott, out of 10, what are you giving? Uh, what's this film called? Amsterdam. Yes. 0. 0.5. <laughs> oh, wow. That's low. What did you give Vice? Did you really give Vice lower than that? I think I gave Vice a 0. 0.2 or something. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> did you really? You'll have to go back and check the spreadsheet oh that God. we had going. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. No, that spreadsheet probably doesn't exist. Well, okay. If I gave Vice a higher score, I reserve the right to amend my score then because this is better than Vice. Uh-huh. Yeah. Some like it's got scores. Last updated. Let's see. Let's see if it's got it in here. This is great content for us right here. Uh, This was 2020. So there's there's some 2020 movies in here. So that's that bodes well. 2019. All right. You were definitely keeping records of it at the time. <laughs> Dumbo. That's a movie we watched for the podcast. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Way better than this. Yeah. Did I? There's no... Wait, hold on. Vice. You Look didn't even that. want to waste your energy. Man, we, I, didn't put it in this, I didn't put it in the spreadsheet. We'll have to go back and listen to the episode, I guess. Yeah. How did that not end up in the spreadsheet? So, well... We'll uh, we'll edit the clip in. Here oh, this is whatever a... I give us. Yeah. Ah, oh, Judas and the Black Messiah. That's our most recent double ten. That's what it was. We were having that conversation a little, like a couple podcasts ago. We we're like, what the last time we gave up? What movie oh, was yeah. the most recent double ten? Well, this one was. This movie was really close, but yeah. <laughs> All zeros, baby. All right. Uh, what am I giving this film? Two point two point five. Two point five pounds, right? Wow. I liked the Daniel Pemberton score. It was nice. Uh, oh, yeah, that, that is the one thing we didn't say. Well, I kind of said it, but Emmanuel Lubezki, why? What? Huh? <laughs> For why, brother? This movie had, like, the Valencia Instagram filter on it. And then it also, like, had this weird gray one that oh, looked right. so bad and artificial. It was a 2018 movie. That's why I was looking. I was looking in the wrong tab. Scott, you gave it a one. Okay. Uh well, really, what I should do is amend Vice to being like a point two because it is it is worse than I I don't feel comfortable giving this a one. 
higher uh-huh. than one. So I I am 1. retroactively 1. amending Vice to, to 0. 0.9. 0. 0.2. 0. Oh. 0.2. And this is a 0. 0.5. There you go. Sure. Yeah, Scott, I give guys I gave I gave Vice a four. Not nearly the worst score that I've that I've given on this podcast. It's fine. So he, right, here's noted, the thing about noted about Vice, Vice Shill over here. Yeah, uh, yeah, Vice, Vice Stan over here. Um, there are parts of that movie that I liked. There's very there's like nothing in this movie that I like. We, we really don't need to relitigate this. It's time to move on. Yeah. God, don't worry, darling. Amsterdam, two of my top five most anticipated movies of the year. Taking L's left and right here, baby. Let's go. <sighs> Wow, we have never speak of these last three weeks again. Yeah. All right. That should just about do it for our discussion of Amsterdam. Like, really do it. Let's put this one in the ground. Uh, Let's take a short break. When we come back, we've got a dispatch from me from the 60th edition of the New York Film Festival, as well as another piece of news from Scott to discuss. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As mentioned before the break, before we get to the New York Film Festival, Scott, tell us all about Jeff Nichols' next movie. Yeah, so Jeff Nichols, the director of uh, Take Shelter, of Mud, of Midnight Special, um, he is coming out with his new movie, um, and it is called uh, the bike riders very on the nose considering the the content of the movie but yeah this movie is about uh, a ri- the rise of a fictional midwestern motorcycle club in the 60s um and scott what um got my attention because i am infamous for hating motorcycles actually motorcycles are one of my least favorite things in uh in the world and if i were ever elected to any sort of position of municipal or federal authority i would outlaw all of them um because they are just there nothing good comes to them and they're menaces to society but i digress um what i i do not enjoy motorcycles but what i may very well enjoy is watching uh, mike feist austin butler tom hardy michael shannon jody comer norman reedus boyd holbrook any of these people uh participating in in motorcycle related activities um and it sounds like we're going to get the opportunity to do that with uh this film the bike riders from jeff nichols so i don't think we know too much more about it other than that um you know again the basic plot setup and the cast um but definitely one that i am going to be looking out for i've only seen mud of uh, of jeff nichols's films but i do quite like mud i know he has a you know his other films have a pretty good reputation particularly take shelter he works with michael shannon quite a lot um and so uh you know i'm i'm interested to see what he is able to come up with um here and i don't think it's going to change my opinion on motorcycles but um you know maybe in the context of a movie with all these very sort of good-looking people riding them um, i can sort of forget about my preconceived bias for at least a couple hours uh, Godspeed, Scott. I'm kind of surprised that you want to see Michael Shannon in something coming off of this week's um, movie, but you know, recover fast. Yeah, I mean, Michael Shannon is really, truly a feast or famine actor. Um, 
because he gives some incredible performances uh, in a movie like Nocturnal Animals. And then he is, you know, in some real awful movies like Amsterdam, like Man of Steel, you know, some some real rough stuff. Mm -hmm. Man, no in between. Uh, Better or worse than Amsterdam? This is crazy that you have it's to think been, about this. It's honestly. been so long this since crazy I've seen that you have to think about this. I still think Man of Steel is the most boring movie that I've ever seen in theaters, but it's been so long. I don't think I could really say. Man of Steel is better than better than Amsterdam. Come on. Well, Come on. I'm talking to a, you know President oh, Snyder Snyder Army over here. So Oh yeah, no, noted <laughs> Snyder lover. What did I give Army of the Dead? Or did yeah. I get the no, original justice? I, I saw your burner, Scott. I saw I know you were you were advocating for Flash entering the Speed Force to win that Oscar. <laughs> Flash entering the Speed Force. I was actually the person who made all the bots that voted yeah. for, for that scene. Um, you know, sure. Sure, Scott. Yeah, Snyder Lover over here. You got me. Finally, I've been outed. All right, New York Film Festival. Scott, I want to be sensitive to the fact that I've just seen a bunch of movies that you haven't seen. What what do you what do you want me to talk about, Scott? Tell me what you want me to tell you about the New York Film Festival. So I definitely want to hear because I know you really enjoyed this one, and it's slowly crawling up my list. I did mention it on our most anticipated um, podcast at the start of the year, but in, as one of my honorable mentions, I think, or it might have made my list. I don't know. Tar, uh, the oh, Todd Field film. Um, it was an honorable mention for you. Um, I have the list up right okay. now because I was just seeing yeah. the disaster that is my list. Oh my God, Maestro gone from this year. Don't worry, darling. Disaster. Amsterdam, worst disaster. Spider Man Across the Spider Verse gone. Knives Out too. My saving grace. <laughs> there we go. List. Let's. See. I hadn't opened my honorable mentions. That so will not be a letdown. I feel pretty confident in that. Yeah, it doesn't seem that way. Uh, Ryan doesn't miss. Tar though. Todd Field. Um, Kate. Wait, Scott. Kate Blanchett is just, you know, uh, inevitable. I think is is the way to describe. Kate Blanchett in this movie. She's that good. Ought to be, you know, short-term memory, of course, from previous years, but has to be one of the best performances of the last few years for me. I think the film, talk about, I mean, I mentioned this earlier, separating the art from the artist. This film is all about separating art from, like, wrestling with the fact that uh, uh, the, the reality of separating the art from the artist, it has a lot on its mind about the sort of the effects of celebrity and um like just genius in general being a a weight or a price that that you might have to pay um in terms of how you think of other people how you think of yourself how you treat them things like that and i think asking a question you know is it possible to be you know to be a a good person at that at that level i think that it not, not that it shows a lot of empathy for this character who i think is a very complicated um genius lydia tar who is kate blanchett's character who is a sort of almost a an incomparable um composer slash conductor um of classical music who is sort of like the first of you know you know first woman to insert thing in the in the composing world, um, which is her character. And yeah, it's, it's, it's two hours and 40 minutes. I was really nervous about the runtime, um, frankly, but the film is just, it totally sweeps you away as much as like, this is just an incredible comparison, I guess, but as much as like something like John David Washington's performance can just almost be repulsive in a film like 
um, in a film like Amsterdam, it's almost like Kate Blanchett is sort of like the polar opposite end of the spectrum where the first scene in the film is just her doing an interview, like literally like the first 15 minutes of the film is, is her being interviewed. Um, and you just like, you're, I was just so absorbed by it just immediately, um, completely captivated by it from start to finish. Um, yeah, it goes some pretty crazy places at times in terms of how far it leans into Tar's sort of exploring that character. Um, and it's sort of, it's not, a, it's not afraid to sort of show the links that, that she goes to and also to let you make an assessment about what that means for, for this, for this person. Great film, a truly great film. One of the, one of the best movies of the year. Um, and Kate Blanchett. I mean, it's not slam dunk that, that she wins the Oscar. Cause you never, you never know. Sometimes the best people don't always win, but it just feels like it, it feels inevitable after seeing the film, but there's a long time until the, until the ceremony. Yeah. Best actress is really tough this year. I, or I already have a lineup that like, there's like three people in there that I just do not really want to part with for anything, but I know that there's going to be, you know, some, some huge ones still to come. Obviously Kate Blanchett maybe being at the top of that list, but yeah. Anybody I, from I'm, women talking? What? Yeah. Well, from what yeah. I understand, there's really like nobody who takes the spotlight there. I it's think like mass. pretty much everybody. Yeah. Is kind yeah. of a supporting performance, kind of an ensemble type thing, but uh, yeah, very excited for tar. Um, I've seen nothing but really good things. I hear the ending is pretty, uh, pretty thought provoking, which uh, I love the movie with a good uh, thought provoking ending. So um, yeah, it, it's one of those films. I, I was describing it to someone the other day like this, how I felt about it is that, and I think maybe I also said this to you at some point as well, where it's like, I was so captivated and so busy watching Kate Blanchett in this film. I almost feel like I have to rewatch it to fully unpack everything else that's happening around around this character because there's still plenty going on you know in the orbit of tar in the film but you just can't i, I just i was unable to not be looking at kate blanchett on the screen basically um so yeah it's i'm i totally plan on rewatching this probably when we're closer to talking about it on the podcast just to refresh me for it sounds like it's going to be later this month maybe when we're talking about it I don't know. Is there a wide date? Yeah, I think it's either later this month or early next month. Got it. Well, we're going to be talking about it more in depth on the podcast. So I guess catch my thoughts in more extended detail when we do that. But yeah, this this film was certainly a winner um, for me. It's it's my favorite film at the festival so far, but that's a, it sets a really high bar. Yeah. Um, the other film, Scott, which I'm you know curious about and I've heard again, from people that I would really like this one uh, is After Sun, which is a new yeah. A24 movie starring Paul Mescal. Yeah, Paul Mescal, um, <coughs> Frankie Sirio, is that is that her name? I'm forgetting. Fran Francesca Corio, I believe is her name. Corio, yeah. Well, yeah, she, yeah, Francesca goes by Frankie, Frankie Corio, okay. and then the director's first-time feature director. Charlotte, Charlotte Wells. Yeah, yeah Charlotte Wells. Yeah, a real this is another one, Scott, like this is another one that I really feel like I need to get a rewatch to fully get my wrap my wrap my head around one because it's one of those I I worry I make this comparison too often for it to sound so special. So stop me if you feel like I've said this too many times before, but and in, in sort of like the genre of storytelling or the framework of storytelling like a rival where your film is never deceiving you 
but you do not have the full picture understanding of what's happening until later on in the movie when you un like when you're being drip fed different parts and you piece the puzzle together. That is that is actually sort of what is going on in this film. Um, the film is never lying to you about anything. It's never deceiving you, but you don't put all the pieces together of exactly what's going on, exactly what the framework of the film really is until later good. on until later on in the movie. And I think it, it adds so much more ra rather than like like arrival is super narratively interesting in that sense. I think that's thematically interesting, too, but it's primarily a narrative, a narrative construct. I think in After Sun, it's like an emotional construct. What Like when you put things together, everything that's happening in the movie just sort of gets painted into a different light and is much more emotionally effective or affecting even. Um, not that it isn't before, but it really sort of lasers in. And I think after you really sit with the knowledge that you gain over the course of the film about what's what's act, what's happening. It really it sort of hit me like a ton of bricks, I think, when I realized that. And, you know, it's it's very and I don't really want to talk about what the movie is interested in, because that's going to be a, it's a big spoiler yeah. for like what the themes of the movie are, because that's, again, like what the framework is, is sort of being deployed for is to is to make you sort of better understand what the themes are. But Paul Mescal is great. Um, Frankie Sirio is great. What's Sirio? Corio. Corio. Jesus. Frankie Corio is great. And Charlotte Wells, like, you know, th this, I was getting to listen to her talk about the film after at the festival, and it does seem like this was a real passion <laughs> project, um, at least in some sense for her. It was very personally relevant what she was doing with the movie. And when that happens, I always wonder if that, if you're able to really bring that same level of narrative weight and effectiveness to future films. Um, but I'm really curious where she's able to take the, what I just think what is an overwhelming success in after sun in terms of just emotional drama storytelling, um, what she's able to do, take that to the next place in the future. She seems like a really promising young creator, young director, I'm young writer. Cause she wrote, she wrote the film. Um, it's very exciting. I think. And then obviously I want to know about white noise as well. Yeah, Scott, you read, so did you read, you read the Don DeLillo novel earlier this no. year? Or no, you didn't. Okay. Um, it's, I don't know anything about this book other than what people have told, what I have heard about this book in relation to the movie. It seems like, uh, unlike, I don't really mean this as, cause it's such a high bar, but like unlike what Denis Villeneuve was able to do with Dune, I'm not, I don't think that Noah Baumbach was able to adapt white noise to the extent that, you know, people who love the book, I'm sure people who love the book will enjoy the movie, but I don't think that I don't seem to have gotten out what people who read the book get out of it. And I know that's such an unrealistic expression, even with Dune, like I wouldn't say you get a one-to-one -one <coughs> experience reading the book versus watching the movie, but I found long parts of white noise messy just like a, it's a very messy film. Um, it seems like wh whereas actually like several other movies, I think at the festival at the New York Film Festival have told very epics, not quite the right word, but very wide ranging stories over the course of, you know, two plus hours. And 
it felt much more cohesive, even in like different acts, like triangle of sadness, I think is an interesting comparison point that it is, it is all the same characters, but it is three acts and it has three very different settings and almost like similar, they're related themes, but they're looking at it from a different angle, essentially white noise. I don't really feel like is able to bring that level of cohesion to the story that's being told. Scott, I could never have guessed where act three in this film was going. Like, I don't, I don't know if you know anything about the book. I have no idea how the book actually goes about act three. I just had no, idea. like it, it, was, it felt nothing. completely separate from the rest of the movie to me. Adam driver, Greta Gerwig. They're good in the film. Um, Don Cheadle good in the film, but I just don't really feel like all the pieces came together. And then as I was mentioning earlier in the podcast, there's a cool um, sort of like outro to the film. Okay. Again, I don't even want to hear yeah. um, triangle of sadness. Got that was, I think as earlier I said, bones and all was out. I don't think that's correct. I think triangle of sadness is definitely out though. Um, oh, now okay. in, New, yeah. in New York and LA that I believe. Um, yeah. That's yeah. Right. Uh, but I know you really enjoyed that one. I did. I really like Triangle of Sadness. I was very skeptical about whether I'd like it. I feel like I've seen, now we're talking about that movie. I feel like I've seen so many reviews of that film that say like the, the like thematic, like angle of the film is so obvious and boring. Yeah, that's what I've seen. I just, yeah. I don't, I feel like I'm watching a different movie than everybody mm -hmm. else that watched that. Cause like, I think that it, it, again, this, this isn't, this isn't a spoiler. Like, like it is obvious that this film is about critiquing like at a very basic level, the, I think the trailer shows you pretty effectively. This film is about critiquing like the rich versus the poor, the, the wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. The like wealth and people without wealth. But I like the middle part of the film act two of the film that like what pretty much everything you've seen in the trailer is act two of the film. There is a first act and a third act that are completely different um, in terms of setting and what's happening in the plot of, of the film at that time. And I think that, it takes that really obvious theme at the center at the center act of that movie in the act two, and it turn doesn't turn it on its head so much, but it shows you much more interesting angles of like the broader idea of like power dynamics in society, and shows you that okay yes obviously like rich like people who are wealthy versus people who are who are you know in search of like like less less well off is one very obvious power dynamic in society. But the film constructs two other scenarios where there are power dynamics in the society and shows you how people behave similarly to how the rich versus the poor and like shows you what that is and mm. is much more interesting. Frankly, Scott, I would agree that that the second act of the film, the the sort of thematic exploration is is very obvious and on the nose. I also just thought that like, the film knew that and so was just trying to be outrageously absurd and funny with what it was doing. Like genuinely, Scott, like I, I, our humors are different. Like I'm not sure if you're going to find the second act as funny as I did, but some of the stuff that is happening in the second act of the movie is just like <coughs> so absurd. And I just, I, it was also the benefit of being in a completely full Alice Tully Hall at the New York Film Festival, like raucous laughter. I just thought, I just thought it was very funny in the second mm -hmm. act. It's also funny in the first and third acts as well, but I just think because the film the film knows that the second act is the obvious one, the super obvious one. And so I think it just like totally leans in to everything that happens on the boat, Woody Harrelson, et cetera. Um, again, I think the film knows that, and I think that it wants its sort of like thematic exercise to be more focused on the first and the third um, acts of the film. So yeah, it's about relationships. It's about power dynamics. 
Um, I enjoyed it a lot. It's probably in my top 10 right now of the year. Um, I don't, I mean, we'll see. I'm seeing a lot of the biggest movies of the year right now. So I'm seeing a lot of the movies that would displace things out of the top 10. So we'll see if it ends up there by the end of the year, but I really enjoyed it. Not gonna lie. Yeah. And then all the beauty in the bloodshed. Yeah. The other sort of big centerpiece film won the golden lion. Um, I, this is the film probably even more so than probably after sun is the only movie I've spent less time thinking about after watching it. Um, sorry, only spent more time opposite yeah. only movie I've spent more time thinking about after Laura Poitras director of, you know, most notably and most recently citizen Four, the Ed Snowden documentary that won it won best documentary, right? Yes. The Oscars? Yeah. That seems obvious. Um, just sort of a, a, a very similar film in the sense that like it, it has multiple avenues. The film could have gone down, you know, Ed Snowden, it decides to be very specifically about Snowden. It, it doesn't really go into like the depths of like, you know, whistleblowers, et cetera. It just like stays pretty focused on who Edward Snowden is um, <laughs> as a person and explores like, both the act of whistleblowing that he did, but that, but also just like why, why he did it and things like that. Um, and sort of goes through his backstory, very similar to the approach that all the beauty and the bloodshed, Laura Portress's new documentary about Nan Golden and her time as an activist, you know, most notably trying to, um, displace the Sackler family, um, given their, um, complicity and almost, um, you know, pernicious role in the opioid epidemic that's killed, you know, at this point, hundreds of thousands, millions of people in the U.S. And I had this really sort of internal struggle, mental struggle about what I wanted the movie to be versus what it was. Part of me just wanted the film to be about the opioid epidemic and about the activism against the opioid epidemic and the Sackler family. And that's not entirely what the film is the film is a documentary about nan golden at the end of the day it is not a film a documentary film about the opioid epidemic and i think i kind of thought it was more about the opioid epidemic and less and less so about nan golden and and it really is just about nan golden's life like full you know when she was born to the present day and it's and it's interestingly it's really I think it is a very interesting choice to frame that and sort of blend those two. Cause like it, it is, it is sort of structured around this sort of alternating story of like what Nan Golden is doing as an activist in the opioid epidemic with her group called pain um, and protesting against the Sacklers to have their names removed from galleries, to have um, museums, et cetera, stop taking uh, the Sackler's money and the work that she and and her collaborators in, in pain have have done for that. And it interweaves that with like pretty much like a documentary retelling of her life and what led her to be an activist down the road. And I can't and I feel like that's just like kind of a double edged sword at the end of the day. Like you're sort of trading narrative focus for sort of like how interesting someone's life can be. That doesn't necessarily tell you tell a, a the the cleanest story in in what your central conceit is around the opioid epidemic, 
And I, I took several days really thinking about whether I thought it ultimately was was better or worse to have done this. Um, and I think that it, I think it made it I think it ultimately came out for the better. I, I, I've sort of wrestled with that quite a bit. But the fact that it doesn't tell this super clean story about the opioid ep epidemic, that there is a lot that Nan Golden is interested in around the AIDS um, epidemic back in you know the 80s and 90s. And it really ultimately tells the story of like this woman who through almost her entire adult life has really been a victim of a people who like the Sacklers, of course, with the opioid epidemic, because she herself was an opioid addict, but B really the sort of negligence of government of, of systems and government, um, so like protecting its citizens. And so that you sort of get a taste of that when it's talking about the AIDS epidemic and how the government, you know, let, you know, U.S. citizens down with the AIDS epidemic and, and how basically AIDS, you know, decimated her, you know, her closest friends and, and found family in terms of the people she was closest with because she wasn't ultimately very close with her family, her, um, her relatives. But then how that translates into the opioid epi epidemic and, and how the sort of like second time of asking she's someone who decided to protest and use her, her fame her notoriety in the art world to really punch back and do something meaningful and how ultimately like you know she wasn't the only person who was an activist obviously in this fight but how a lot of her work did influence um decisions that that specifically people in the you know places in the art world you know, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Guggenheim, the Lou, um, all these places like she protested. She went to them. She refused to do exhibits with them. And that at least nudged them in this direction. Not the only may, may not necessarily be the only thing that pushed them over the edge on that, but really did influence decisions people made and and how it was able to contribute to sort of the uh, un unwhitewashing of the of the Sackler name. Um, fascinating documentary. 100% recommend it um, to anyone. Yeah, just really brilliant stuff. Yeah, uh, I mean, definitely one I want to check out as well. You know, there's so much buzz around it now, like just another one of those movies we hadn't even heard anything about. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, it wins at Venice. Yeah, it's, it's in it's the centerpiece, centerpiece film at, at New York. Yeah, it wins film festival. Crazy. It's like, yeah. Well, and now people are talking about it's like, it's going to be the first document documentary nominated for Best Picture. Maybe. I kind of doubt it. But maybe. I'll believe it when I see it, yeah. Yeah. It it would not to be the most cynical Oscar for like it would be great virtue signaling to nominate this for best picture. Mm. Um, yeah. Like we're gonna acknowledge the movie, but we're not actually gonna do anything about the problems that like it addresses. Yeah. I mean I mean I just just knowing like the Oscars, right? Like Yeah. Not not that they have their own problematic members um in the film community that they're doing very little to you know excise johnny depp's not making a movie right now i guess so that's good don't 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 say that too loud uh his fans will come and find you that's true yeah i mean it's very funny because i was I, we were both listening to the big picture speaking of of you know the tide changes on films everyone wondering if tar and like when this gets a film gets a wide release if there's going to be like a social reckoning about making a movie about a horrible person yeah, I'm sure the discourse will be perfectly acceptable and normal and nobody will 
everyone yeah. will, will behave themselves responsibly. Yeah. Other quick hits. Uh, I've given up on Claire Denis. Not for me, I think. Um, Stars at Noon didn't hit. Yeah. I, I mean, to be fair, I feel like you still, you know, you haven't watched Beau Travail. You haven't watched Let no, the Sunshine In, like her most famous acclaimed films. Like that's fair. Stars at, Stars at Noon, Both Sides of the Blade. Like these are movies are getting very mid reception overall. I mean, High Life got pretty good reviews, but also I know it's like, it's pretty out there. out there. I mean, I've seen yeah. Bochabale, which is pretty out there, but also is a good movie. Like, I think that one would be worth giving a chance. Yeah, well, as for her new stuff, maybe I'm just going to take a pass in the future. Yeah. Like, not going to go out of my way to see it at you know the New York Film Festival or something like that. Um, yeah, Paul Schrader. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Paul. Paul should have stopped at her first reform. Some people like it. Uh, that's all I'm saying. People like it, but I... I are people acknowledging that it's like it's like oh boy Paul like I don't know man it's is it okay that is it okay that you're making a movie that that is doing this do you, do you know what the film's about um what Joel Edgerton's character is like is a neo Nazi okay right right you know I did neo Nazi I did who goes full white savior on this like you know mixed mixed race person who is like 20 to 25 years younger than him and uh spoilers for master gardener so fast forward 15 seconds if you don't want this uh they're they're together they're married at the end of the movie oh um yeah he opened the this is sort of like the title card where you see like most of this actually happened i think a similar title card is if the director introduces the movie and says this is a fable you don't have to believe it you just have to imagine it i'm like oh that doesn't sound good <laughs> that doesn't sound like a good intro to a movie about an ex-neo-nazi um so yeah it seems like the film is interested in redemption as a lot of paul schrader movies are unlike the card counter and first reformed i'm not sure that joel edgerton's character in this film is is earning his redemption how how would you compare it to something like Three Billboards, for example, where you also end up sure. in, with our hero riding away in a car with the racist cop? Who, yeah, know, well, I didn't like that personally. Theoretical moment of forgiveness, but but that's definitely well, well, a movie okay, that we well, both well, well, so about. Francis McDormand is not like boning Sam Rockwell at the end of the movie. Uh, yes, that there is <laughs> no. a clear difference there. Yes, yeah, that that's my one hiccup. There's there's a little bit of difference. I think forgiveness is one thing, but I don't. I think this film goes further than forgiveness, though, which is the tough part for me to to jump over. Um. But Joel Edgerton's very good in the film, I guess. I don't know. I've never played a neo-Nazi or thought about playing a neo-Nazi, so I don't know what that takes uh, to do. It's one of those things where you start watching the movie and you get the like who this guy was, and then like there's a reveal later on in the movie where he takes his shirt off, where he, this this man is like fully tatted with swastikas and other ne like white pride and neo and Nazi tattoos, and you're like, oh boy, <laughs> Paul went for it. Um, just yeah, wild stuff. Did not did not appreciate it very much um other stuff at the festival that i've seen kelly reichert's new movie showing up um michelle williams unrecognizable in this film i think if you just watch this film cold it would take you a little bit to recognize it was michelle williams um you get there in the end it's she's not like completely chameleonic i guess but like she's not michelle williams as we know her uh so yeah she's not michelle williams from venom um for sure so there's that there's scott what else have i seen 
I, I I mean, as much as I enjoy Venom, to like for that to be the movie. That was that a joke. Yeah, Scott, that was the joke guy. I was making. Yeah. <laughs> okay. thank, thank you for appreciating my joke. Um, is that it? Is that a life scene? I saw a bunch of stuff. Decision to leave. I saw Decision to yeah. Leave yesterday. Yeah. Um, and I saw uh M- Mia Hansen Love's new movie as well. Um, one one fine, fine morning. morning yeah. I I feel like I'm gonna end up liking that movie more than most people. I found it quite affecting. Um telling two sort of like parallel stories happening to the same person at the same time. I just find the juxtaposition of the emo of like the, the dueling emotions in this film. Very fascinating. Just as a general conceit, the film is about, um, you know, this, this woman living in Paris, whose uh, father is, has a degenerative illness and is dying um, and is, is slowly dying and becoming worse and worse while she's also finding sort of a, a second, <laughs> like a second love. Um, she meets a, she sort of reconnects with a man from that she's known in the past and they fall in love. And it's very interesting to see that sort of dynamic on screen. And I found certain scenes very personally affecting just maybe because of the con, like I find old people getting older. Um, I have a bit of a soft spot, I think for that in general, as I find that something, I find that very affecting. And I think that what the film does with that feels very raw and emotional. Um, in a authentic, oh, sorry, uh, way. Um, and yeah, I found I found some parts of it really, really affecting. Um, decision to leave, not what I was expecting that movie to be. Uh, except the film's a comedy. That's all I'm going to say. It's also kind of a procedural, isn't it? That's what I've heard. Totally, yeah. I mean, it's, got, it's like... I'm in. It I'm is in, like baby. memories of murder crossed with some Hitchcock, like... I don't know, like Vertigo or something mm-hmm. like that, or like, yeah, because there's um, like a romance in it, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah, um, very much so. It's the central, central part. Well, of Memories it. of Murder has like the great comedy as well, which is one of the things that I really enjoy about the movie. Yeah, so so I think that's the that's sort of like the comedic element mixed with yeah. like cops not doing their jobs properly, mm-hmm. kind of thing, and then like, then there's the side that's like sort of the Hitchcockian thriller, yeah, um, sort of romance. like femme fatale of like um phantom thread something like that where there's this toxic central relationship um that's going on very funny film um yeah park chan very funny guy introduced the movie had some good jokes yeah um he said for people not to uh not to get worried about there being uh very excessive violence because there was no excessive violence in the film and not to get too excited because there was no handmaiden level um, sex scenes and nudity in it. Um, so yeah, I, it's a good one. I think after seeing Pleasure with a New York crowd, Scott, I think a New York crowd could have handled it. I think he was just trying, like, trying to be funny. To be fair, also obviously, like yeah. I will say, um, it was very interesting. Obviously, this isn't an issue during the movie, but it was very interesting during the Q and A and during the intro. Because there was a very large portion of the audience who was very, like, obviously fluent in Korean. Um, and people laughing at the joke before it gets translated oh. by the translator. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 30 seconds late on this one. Uh, good for me. Um, yeah, yeah, it was good. But uh, fun, fun movie. It was, it's just, it's a fun movie to watch. Uh, doesn't, doesn't have like the, uh, the X factor of something like a Memories of Murder does in my book or Parasite or. Sure. Even the handmaid. I like the handmaid more probably. But he's just having fun. He just wants to have fun. He clearly just wanted to make a fun movie. 
um, that, in its own know, weird that, way. Those have resulted in some of my favorite movies in the last couple of years. It's just directors having a laugh. So, yeah. Anything James else, Wan, Scott? He was having a laugh when he made Malignant. James Wan. I saw you rewatch that. I saw you rewatch that recently. Well, I mean, it's October, and I realized I hadn't watched anything spooky yet. So I was like, well. Would you describe that movie as spooky? Just curious. It is a horror movie. Like, I don't really get scared by that many movies. So, like, it's hard to say one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just looking at my list if I've missed anything. I think I've covered. Oh, Bones and All. I saw Bones and All. Timothy Chalamet was not there, and I was sitting on the second row. And so I was Uh, very disappointed about that. Um, That's a shame solid film taylor russell timothy chalamet very good actors um i concur god the fucking reactions of the crowd and that people were you scott you're not ready for it's is it get i've seen raw it doesn't pull punches i haven't seen raw yeah yeah i haven't i haven't seen raw but if you are woozy around blood around um the idea of someone eating another human being uh this film does not shy away from some pretty gory stuff you were asking me if if this or triangle of sadness um was more gross definitely this movie okay yeah um it obviously it depends on what uh, what what you know if you're gets, a metaphobe, you. then you should not watch Triangle of Sadness, probably. Yeah, yeah. Like if if a lot of people vomiting or just like nasty bodily stuff is going to like not related to like gore is going to is going to gross you out. Like skip, skip Triangle of Sadness because there's a lot of that in the second act. Um, I think that most people will find just because I think Bones and All is like intense the entire time. Like there's so few moments in the movie. Or so few sections of the movie that don't have some element. And I said this to you, Scott. And this is, I'm curious if it was just my theater and being so close to the stage and so close to the sound, some of the sound system. But man, the crunch the first time it happens, because it's also like kind of unexpected when it happens the first time. But the crunch, man, oh my God. I was just like, oh shit. I don't know what sound effects I got on that. Like it sounds like someone like, like, Man, they really, it was crisp. That was a crisp bite. Let, let's not lose all of our listeners here. Scott, surely they logged off an hour ago and then we started I talking mean, about probably, Amsterdam. Probably, but yeah. <laughs> when we started talking about Vice more than Amsterdam in, in the review. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that should do it. That's it. That's the 11 movies I've seen so far at the film festival. I'll have more thoughts next week after I see Women Talking, after I see The Eternal Daughter, uh, which is Joanna Hogg's new movie after I see Armageddon time, after I see a She Said, and The Inspection. That's what's left on my docket. That will do it for episode 207 of Some Like It, Scott. Where can people find you on social media, Scott? At Scarbydent. And I'm at Shelton 2013 On Twitter, Letterboxd, Serialize. Don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon as well, www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. If you can support us over there, we'd appreciate it. If not, that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc., where we'd love it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, et cetera, et cetera, so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. We appreciate all of you as well for taking time to listen to us chat about Amsterdam and the New York Film Festival and biker movies. We'll be back next week with a review of Till, the biopic of Mamie Till, the 1950s Chicago educator and activist who pursued justice after her son Emmett 
was lynched by a group of white men in Mississippi in 1955. We hope you'll join us for that very light material next week. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. See you down the road. Bye.